At this moment, I ask you to join with me as we go to our Father, asking him to help us to prepare ourselves for him. Holy and merciful God, you are our light and our salvation. You created us from the humble dust of the earth, and you delivered those who were enslaved in Egypt and made them into the people of Israel. Through the prophets and priests, you guided them with wisdom and compassion. You forgave them, Father, of their sins. Time and again, it seemed, but you never stopped loving them. And in due time, you sent us, Jesus, the Messiah. While on this earth, he declared your reign, O God. He taught us about love, humility, grace, peace. And in return, the world crucified him. But you raised him from the dead. You sent the Holy Spirit to be our everlasting guide in the way of peace. To bring us out of enslavement into your righteous reign. And this is our story. The story in which we find ourselves, O oh God. And in the midst of the death, oppression, deceit, and certainly the chaos, the sorrow, the pain of this world. We live and trust in your Holy Spirit. We remember this is our story. And we look forward to the coming fulfillment of your reign. And so, creator of light, thank you for gathering us to gather together in this place of worship in the light of this day. And we ask you to scatter the darkness from our hearts and minds. May your light comfort the hearts and minds of all who grieve this day, whether it is the loss of a loved one or the loss of a dream. May your light heal the minds and bodies of all who struggle with illness, whether it is something simple or life-threatening. We ask you to bring healing. We ask you to let your light illuminate us, the hearts of all who love your Son, who have devoted themselves to his purpose. And we ask, God, that you send forth your light of healing, your peace into this world. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the light of the world. Hallelujah and amen. Today we are going to be looking at the redeeming God and Savior, a communion service where we are focused on what he is doing, has done, and will do. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a rite that is observed by most groups in the broad spectrum of Christendom. There are actually only a few denominations that do not practice this rite in any form or fashion. Now, the meaning of the Lord's Supper has been debated for centuries. But there is some consensus with all groups who call themselves Christian. Uh, they may add more to what they believe this means, but every group that acknowledges Christ as the Son of the living God knows that this service, this rite, reminds us of what he did 
on our behalf. And as Baptists, we have embraced this understanding of the Lord's Supper. It is a memorial service. And its primary function for us then is to remind us of the great price of our salvation. Now, we favor the title of the Lord's Supper. Uh, that's what we call this ordinance most of the time. But we do know or familiar with and will use the term communion. I'm using it today because it reminds us, not only is this a service where we connect with our Father, it's a service that involves us connecting with one another. For it to be meaningful and rich, we have got to be the body come together for this purpose. Now, as we prepare ourselves for this observance, I want to remind you, I've introduced you to this term before, but I want to introduce you again to a more formal word that is often used for this meal. Uh, it is used across denominational lines, and the word is Eucharist. That's a big fancy term. Uh, what we need to know, it's a very old term, and you may or may not understand this or know this, but it actually is born from the Bible itself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul tells us that when Jesus was getting ready to do the supper, he gave thanks over the elements. And that's what Eucharist means. It simply is a thanksgiving. Uh, and it reminds us uh, that this is what Christ has done. Now, I know, as Baptists, it is highly unlikely that we would embrace the term Eucharist. But folks, let it remind us that this service is a time of thanksgiving. It is not just a solemn remembrance of the crucifixion of Christ or our need for self-examination. It is a thankfulness that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, was willing to come and give himself for us. It is his life that we celebrate today. It is his truth. So, to help us keep in mind that this is a service today of thanksgiving, I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to ask you to share with me in a statement that is used across denominational lines. You will find it from churches of the free church movement like ourselves to more formal reformed churches to Lutheran, a lot of different things, but it, it will remind us. So you're going to be familiar with the format. So just follow the, the headings. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Amen, folks. It is always right for us to give thanks. You may be seated. And I'm going to explain a little bit of what's happening today. We're going to see how right it is to give thanks and praise to God as we look at what we will be doing today. As we look at the redeeming God and Savior in this communion service. 
and you're going to join with me, and you are basically, if you've ever thought, Brother Danny blew that sermon, here's your chance, because you're going to help me preach today. You're going to help me preach through song. And I know that may sound a little weird for me to say that, but I want you to know there's a biblical basics behind this concept. To the church at Colossae, the Apostle Paul wrote, toward the end of the book, as he's getting his people ready, he's giving them all sorts of practical understanding about what they're to do. And in Colossians 3.16, the Lord let us know, that it is, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So, when we're singing, our primary thought tends to be that we're giving praise to God, and yes, we are. But every song we sing, always, is used by God to teach us. When you sing, the person next to you is hearing the words of the truth of the gospel. They're hearing the words of praise. And we build each other up and we strengthen each other. So you're going to be helping preach today. And there are going to be songs throughout this service. And what we're going to do is take a big panoramic view We're going to look from the very beginning of time through the ages, all that God has done to bring about redemption. And we're going to see through it all. There's reason for thankfulness before our God. And so we will begin by taking a look at God Almighty, creator of all. This is where we begin our journey. The fact that God is creator. And the first book in our Bible, the very first statement is simple and yet incredibly profound. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's absolutely amazing. You notice the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't try to defend that concept. It doesn't try to prove, it simply states with a factuality, God created. But have you ever wondered why? Why did God create this place? Was there something missing in his existence? Did he somehow need the human race to worship him and adore him? No. If there were a need in God, he would not be God. So why did he create? I believe that the Word of God indicates in a lot of different ways that the triune God created a world upon which he could shower his infinite love. Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in the process of creation and have come together to bring about a world that he could just shower with love. It's not that God had to create. He wanted to. And he wanted to because he he loved the world and the people he was creating. It was his heart. It was his wonder. It was his praise to God Almighty. That's what God wanted to do. And so, we are going to acknowledge our God has created. 
Now, this staff will be your cue. David's too. When you see that, get ready because we're about to sing. And we're going to sing thankfulness and praise to the God who brought us into existence. We ask that you would remain seated through this song, please. I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command, and all the stars obey. I sing the goodness of the Lord that filled the earth with food. He formed the creatures with his word and then pronounced them good. Lord, how thy wonders are displayed where'er I turn my eye. If I survey the ground I tread or gaze upon the sky, There's not a plant or flower below But makes thy glories known That spread the flowing sea But all that borrows life from thee Is ever in thy care And everywhere that man can be, Thou, God, art present there. Amen. Amen and amen. The mighty power of God created all that we see. The mighty power of God moved in our lives and brought us into existence. And that is such a glorious thing to say. God created the heavens and the earth. But sometime after that creation, and we don't know how long it was. It may have been a very short amount of time. It may have been immense segments of time. The story changed. With each day of creation, God looked back and said, it's good, it's good. And on the sixth day, as the human race is created, God looks back and says, it's very good. But we know that's not all the story. Adam and Eve were the crowns of God's creation. Adam and Eve chose disobedience and sin entered God's created order. How it was they made the choice to disobey God, the scripture doesn't really go into great detail. But they believed the lie of the serpent. And it seems that they wanted to be their own gods. When the serpent said that the fruit you've been forbidden to eat will make you like God, that, that appears to be the argument that finally 
one Eve's heart. Now we can blame Adam and Eve all we want, and a lot do. But the reality is, every person in this room at some point or time has been his own Adam or her own Eve. Because we too have made the choice of our will above God. And this is why redemption was needed. Because we allowed sin into this world. We have embraced it in our own lives. And it was a problem we could not fix ourselves. Adam and Eve tried to fix the problem by hiding from God, which is absolutely ludicrous to us, isn't it? How do you hide from the one who created you? But we've been running ever since. And the human race has tried to hide. And if that's all we could say, mankind sinned, And if we acknowledge God was within his rights to destroy everything, then it becomes even more amazing and more reason for thankfulness. When we see God's hand move, and very specifically move through call and covenant. Call and covenant. Throughout the ages, God raised up people to be his instruments, to be his conduits of grace. And those people he called up, he entered into covenant with. And we see him moving throughout the ages, establishing covenants. You could argue he made a covenant with Noah, although he basically was a promise, I'm not going to destroy the world again by flood, and gave the ark, the rainbow, as the, the sign of that but a true sense of God's plan to do something amazing happened when we meet a man in Ur of Chaldees, what would later come to be known as Babylon. His name was Abram. And God called this man out of a context of pagan idolatry. And in the 12th chapter of the book, of Genesis, God Almighty let us know he was not content to leave this world shattered. He wasn't content. It was his heart to change the circumstance, to change the reality of a world lost in sin. And we see the first strong glimpse of that even though there's a hint, even in the story of Genesis 3, we see God's intent in Abram, in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred's and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Please catch this. We know Abram to have to become Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people. And God said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you more, more descendants than you could ever count. But folks, please notice, it wasn't just about Abram, was it? 
And it wasn't even just about his descendants. Because God said in this process of blessing you and your descendants, I will bless the entire world. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that the seed of Abraham is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And God had a plan setting in motion. And Abram is called by God. And he stumbled and fumbled along the way, but he ultimately proved himself faithful. And then centuries down the line, his descendants are enslaved in Egypt. The Hebrew people. And the Word of God indicates while they were in Egypt, they were worshiping other gods as well. But God raised up a man called Moses and through Moses led the people of Israel, the Hebrew children, out of the land of Egypt, headed toward Canaan, and they made a stop at a place called Sinai. And there God spoke to Moses. And God gave the commands. God opened the door to covenant. And we find it summarized for us with, with this idea of covenant in Exodus 24.3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. A summary statement of how the Hebrew people now become Israel. The people called by God and brought into a covenant relationship, a relationship of promise, of grace, of mercy, of love. And Noah, Abraham, Moses, the Hebrew people all entered into their respective covenants with the great God Almighty. And with every covenant that was made, we see God's diligence. God diligently seeking out the billions of Adam's and Eve's throughout the centuries. Reaching out to bring hope. Reaching out to bring life. Yahweh, the mighty God of old, was a maker of covenants and a giver of promise. Remain seated. Guide thee, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me till I want no more. Open now the crystal fountain, whence thy healing stream doth flow. Let the fire and cloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. Strong deliverer, strong deliverer, be thou still my strength and shield. Be thou still my strength and shield. 
When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Bear me through the curling current, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises, I will ever give to thee. I will ever give to thee. The great Yahweh, I am that I am, the maker of covenants. And when we understand, we see God's plan was firmly set in motion. God was moving with intent, with purpose, with heart to bring people back to himself. A lost world, God said, I am going to do this. I am going to get it done. But there's a problem still. God's plan to redeem is flowing wonderfully, beautifully. But there was another need. And God responded to that need. Centuries down the line, Israel has become a nation on its own. Israel has kings. Israel has leadership. They divide into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And things are not well. And into a system where things were not well, we see God's next major step in redemption. We see a promised deliverer. God promised he would set things straight. Now, when we look at Israel's history, when we take a look at who the people of God were, it becomes very obviously that throughout the centuries, it, w- it became clear that people were still weak and prone to fail. With all God was doing, we find them continually losing sight of him. The children of Israel chased after foreign gods through much of their existence. Much of the story of the Old Testament is God raising up prophets, telling them to repent, to leave the idols alone, but they continued to fail. And they weren't helped by leadership because the kings of Israel as a whole were part of the problem. They were introducing idolatry. They were not being the godly men God had called them out to be. The priests who were meant to represent the people to before God were people who were immoral, people who used bad judgment, people who allowed corrupt means of worship to take place. So there was still a problem. There was, even though God is moving forward, the people are not keeping up with their end of the covenant. And again, I posit God could have destroyed everybody. Still, God did not abandon his plan, promising that one would come who would make salvation possible. You can't do it, he essentially says, but I will. And in a beautiful passage from the Word of God, the book of Isaiah, one of the 
maybe not the better known images, we see the promise in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Please grab hold of this image. I've told you I don't grow things. I kill almost everything I try to grow. I am not a Seth or you ladies who do so wonderfully with your plantings. But even though I am not a good agriculturalist, I know that a dead plant is a dead plant because I'm not a very good agriculturalist. And a dead stump is dead. And that's where Israel was. Absolute death. That God said, what you cannot do, I will do. And I will bring life from dead Jesse. In other words, I will bring life from my people who have lost sight of me and have gone their own way. And it was a promise that became precious in the hearts of God's people. Isaiah would say there were a lot of things. He would use a lot of images for this one. The branch, the servant of the Lord, Mashiach, Messiah, the anointed one of God, and one that will be forever something to give thankfulness for. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. Let's all stand as we sing. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. 
And the promise of that Emmanuel, that branch, that deliverer, held the people's hearts in expectation. And every year they were waiting. Every year they were hoping. Every year they were looking for this Savior to come, this deliverer, this anointed one of God. And finally, A Savior is born. Finally, after so very long, the promise became reality in the flesh. Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't tell us much of anything about the birth of Jesus. Most of what we know about his birth is taken from the books of Matthew and Luke. It's there we have our Christmas stories of shepherds and angels and magis and no room at an inn and a miraculous conception and amazing delivery. We have all of those stories we love and treasure so much. But the Apostle Paul came to the heart of the story. The Apostle Paul, led by the Spirit, understood that God's timing was perfect. God's timing was perfect. While Israel had waited and prayed and sought the Lord, it wasn't until the time was right. And so Paul very simply describes not the physical birth of Jesus so much as the reason for his birth. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul wrote, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And this was God's promise. This was the reality. Not one moment before the time was right. Not one minute later after the time was right. But God, in his majestic wisdom and power, knew precisely when the Deliverer needed to come. And what a glorifying truth is here. God sent His Son into this world. He was born a king, just not the way people expected. The Savior finally comes. The light for the where Jesus lay. Alleluia, oh how the angels sang. Alleluia, how it rang. And the sky was bright 
light. Twas the birthday of a king. Twas a humble birthplace, but oh, how much God gave to us that day. From the manger bed, not a path has led, but a perfect was the birthday of a king. And that may be the strangest part of this service. You get to sing a Christmas song in the month of May. But folks, there's an important truth about this we need to look at. I love Christmas carols. Uh, They are wonderful, they are joyful, and I look forward to Advent every year. But we need to understand something at the depths of our being. The amazing birth of the Lord was only the beginning of fulfillment for God's plan. He did not remain a babe in a manger. He did not remain a babe hidden in Egypt from a horrible king. He did not remain a child growing in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. This was the beginning. And as much as I love the songs of Christmas, we must remember that this was God announcing to the world, my plan is here. The Savior is come. And folks, we cannot just think of Bethlehem. Because when Jesus Christ came into this world, He came to do something more than give us cool songs. He came And we now know the Savior lives. He came to live a life. He came to walk this earth. The Savior lives is the next point in God's plan of redemption. And it's very important that we get this. It's very crucial that we understand God's plan was not what people expected. So just in case you have found yourself wondering why God does the things He does, You're not the first and you won't be the last. It wasn't what people expected. So much so that John the Baptist and the story of his his miraculous conception and and coming together is just as will. A barren is in in his barren mother's womb, we're told John the babe leaped with joy when Mary came into their presence carrying her child within her womb. He knew, in a way we cannot explain, that this was it. And then, as a man, John saw Jesus while John was baptizing in the Jordan. He sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And when he baptizes Christ, 
John sees the phenomenon of the day, the Spirit descending. He hears the voice of God. This is my beloved Son. And yet, toward the end of his life, John's in prison. Because Jesus wasn't what he expected. He said, he sent a message, are you the one or not? After so much miraculous attestation that this is the Savior, are you the one or not? And Jesus sent word, I am. The people as a whole, what did they want from Messiah? They wanted somebody to come and kick Rome out. That's what they were looking for, a king who would come in power and might and get rid of the foreign enemy and set up the throne of David forever and ever, amen. And they would always be their own people from that moment on. That's what they wanted. They wanted a conquering king. And he shows up born into a poor household. And we know Joseph and Mary were poor because when they dedicated him, they gave the offering of two turtle doves, which was reserved for people who could not afford the more expensive offering. When we hear that Joseph was a carpenter, don't think of a modern carpenter who charges 40 bucks an hour. He was a day laborer. And he wasn't born into the palace. He grew up in Nazareth. A place that didn't have a very good reputation. Just ask Nathaniel. And he lived his life. Not at all what they expected. But what a life it was. What an amazing life. The Savior came. His story was not what they wanted. His story was what they needed. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. The story was precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Tell how the angels in chorus sang as they welcomed his birth. Glory to God in the highest, peace and good tidings to alone in the desert tell of the days that are past how for our sins he was tempted yet was triumphant at last tell of the years of his labor tell of the sorrow he They nailed him, writhing in anguish and pain. Tell of the grave where they laid him, how he lived. 
Not what they expected, but what was needed. You see, he was a miracle worker. He was a great teacher, but he was so much more. Yes, he did amazing things no one had ever seen. He said things. The folks who heard him said, no one has ever taught with that kind of authority. But he was so much more. He was the eternal son in the flesh who lived the life necessary to bring salvation. And we discover in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, this statement. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has not ascended into heaven, has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. This is so crucial. This one who gave himself, this one who came, lived a life of perfection. Never disobeying the Father, never holding back. And even in the garden when he prayed, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass. He still prayed, but my will isn't important. Yours is. Folks, to perform the perfect sacrifice, he had to be perfection. And he lived just like we are. When is, the, when is temptation the strongest? When does it hit us the hardest? And I'm not talking about when you're tired or when you're sick. I'm talking about the reality of temptation itself. It's the strongest when we resist, isn't it? That's when it really begins to hit hard. Over and over again. But do you know why we don't know that so well? Because we give in. Temptation comes and we don't always look for the way to escape that God promises. And we give in. Every time Christ was tempted, he did not give in. So he knew temptation levels we will never understand. And it all prepared him. It all prepared him for redemption's cost. What did it take for you and me to be saved? 
What did it take for sin's power to be broken? When you look at Jesus, he was an incredibly compassionate person. And with that compassion, Jesus tried to prepare his disciples for his great act of sacrifice. You will hear me say from time to time to listen with both ears and your heart. I do that because I know who we are and what we are. And it's shown very very clearly in the disciples. He told them why he had come on more than one occasion. And they just didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to acknowledge it. It wasn't what they wanted. They wanted that conquering king. And it seems the more he talked about his death, the more they tried to change the subject. At one point, they're arguing among themselves, who's the greatest of the disciples? Who will be most important in the kingdom of God? And Jesus takes time to let them know greatness in the kingdom isn't about power and might, it's about service. And then he made a statement as abundantly clear as he could possibly make it. Found in the 10th chapter of the book of Mark, Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know how he could say it clearer. I'm not here for you to wait on me. I'm not here for you to give me, for me to receive your service. I'm here to serve, and that service culminates as I give my life for the price of salvation. And did they listen? No. No. When Jesus lets them know what's going to happen, right after Simon Peter said, you are the Lord, Son of the living God, and Jesus said, you're... You're blessed. No one revealed that to you, but my father, Peter, when Jesus talks about his death, Peter says, we're not going to let that happen. We're not going to desert you. And at that point, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You know those temptations that Jesus faced? Some of them came at the hand of his disciples. And even at the very end, when it is about to happen, the night before he was arrested, Jesus and his disciples observed the Passover meal that, that, that celebrated God's delivering Israel from Egypt. He took the elements of that meal and he changed them forever for his disciples. In the oldest written record of the Lord's Supper, we believe that 1 Corinthians was written significantly earlier than the Gospels. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, not because he was just giving them worship discussion, they had even messed up the Lord's Supper. He says, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what this service is about. This is my body I'm giving for you. This is my blood I'm shedding for you. And it broke their hearts. But I believe in years to come when they would do this. As much as it pained them to know Christ had to die for them to be saved. Like us, they were incredibly thankful. He was willing to pay the price. Our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. So we share in this bread of life, and we drink of his sacrifice. Savior Jesus Christ torn for you. Eat and remember the wounds that heal the death that brings us life. Paid the price to make us one. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his In his suffering. 
the table of the King. My friends, my brothers and sisters, this act of communion will always remind us of the cost of our redemption. From the beginning when we fell and let sin enter in as the human race and as each member of the human race through the covenants made and very often on our end broken, the compassion and steadfast love of the Lord remained true until finally the promised Savior was born, lived the perfect life, and gave himself. We are told in the book of Corinthians, and again we have the story of the Lord's Supper because the church had messed up. Paul said, you need to examine yourselves and see if you discern the body. And while he was probably is referencing the bread and the cup. I think there's even more there. As you discern the body, their sins at the Lord's Supper was their abuse of each other instead of honoring the Lord. And so he said, you need to be right both with God and man. And so we need to take time to take a look at ourselves. You do not have to be perfect to observe the Supper. If that were true, no person on earth would ever be able to partake. But you need to have your hearts where they are supposed to be. You need to examine. And if there is something within your life that is keeping you from being what God wants you to be, now is the time to deal with it. Now is the time to confess. Now is the time to ask God to bring healing to your brokenness. Now is the time for you to say to your Lord, Make me into what I can be, that I may glorify your name. So would you bow your heads and speak with your God? Healing God, you invite us to open our hearts and our lives to your cleansing presence. You have promised that whatever is fragile or weak or broken can be restored through your gracious love. And today, today we ask you to touch us tenderly with your forgiveness and grace. We ask that you refresh our souls with your abundant mercy that you Feed us with 
your touch of compassion. Help us, Lord, so we can be ministers to one another, harbingers of your peace in your church throughout this world. Help us, O God, to take upon us the ministry of reconciliation, sharing with others the reality of what can be ours through your grace. Forgive us. Cleanse us. We pray in the name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who heals and redeems us all. Amen. Amen. This time I would ask our deacons to make their way to the front. And friends, this is a joyful feast of the people of God. Congregation of Christ, the Lord has prepared His table for all who love Him and trust in Him alone for their salvation. All who are truly sorry for their sins, who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus as their Savior, and who desire to live in obedience to Him as Lord, are now invited to come with gladness to the table of the Lord. So come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ. You desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim to heaven's rewards, but because of your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now, my friends, we have heard the words of institution. We have searched and laid our hearts open before God. Now, join with me in prayer as we remember all that God has done to make us his own. Remembering that as we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So indeed, Almighty God, it is right from east to west, from north to south, in all the seasons of our lives to give thanks to you, our majestic God. You dwell high and lifted up. Your train fills the temple, but you also walk with your people. You embrace the world you created with your justice, your love, your grace. And so with all the believers of every race in every land, with the multitudes in heaven and countless choirs of angels, we praise your glorious name. Our God and Father, holy and mighty, we praise and glorify you. We worship and adore you. You formed the earth from chaos. You encircled this world with air for us to breathe. You created fire for warmth and light. You nourished the lands with your water. You molded us in your image. With mercy higher than the mountains, with grace deeper than the sea, You blessed your own people, Israel, that we also, estranged and dying, might be adopted to live in your spirit through the work of your eternal Son. Almighty God, holy and merciful and compassionate, we remember the life Jesus lived for others 
His death and resurrection which brought full redemption into our existence. And we wait for his coming. And so we ask, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we ask that you move upon us during this meal with your Holy Spirit. On this, the great day of Pentecost, may your Spirit move upon us. He gives, through his breath, life. With his fire, he rouses us to love you. Father, nurture in us the fruits of your Spirit. And so we ask, come Holy Spirit, move upon our hearts. Fill us, Lord, with your blessing. Until needy, no longer. We feast forever in the triumph of the Lamb, to whom all glory and honor are yours. Almighty God and Father, we ask these things through the Holy Spirit. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. The deacons will now, at this point, distribute the elements of the supper. The little pack you have will have both cup and bread.
Jesus Christ said, this bread is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. He took the cup of the Passover and said, this cup is a covenant which cost my blood. It's been given for you. Take and drink. We are told in the book of Mark, after they ate of the supper, they sang a hymn. Most likely, they sang one of the psalms that are known as the Hallels, a group of psalms that are focused on praise. That may not have been an easy song for them to sing. They didn't know the end of the story, but we do. And so, we are going to sing a parting hymn. And today that will act as our benediction. And so when we are through singing, I'm asking you as quietly and as reverently as you can, depart from the sanctuary, meditating on what this has meant, remembering on what he has done, and giving glory and honor to our Lord. As always, if you are on this side of the sanctuary, please depart from that in exit, from this, from there, and then feel free once you leave the building to, to visit if you would like. But remember, we know the rest of the story. That tomb could not hold him. That tomb could not keep him. And so we serve a risen Savior. Would you stand as we sing together? A parting hymn we sing.
shown until